We are in Acts chapter 25, and we'll pick it up in the middle of the book, verse 13, in the ongoing narrative of, of the church. We only have two chapters left in our study of Acts, so we're going to finish this pretty quick. And uh, at this point, um, kind of the major character in our narrative is the Apostle Paul as he lives out his life. We've seen, it seems like Groundhog Day every week now, Paul is on trial for something, having to get a defense of his life and his ministry. Um, at this point, he's only got six or seven years left of his life, and I'm certain it's not the last time he's going to give a defense or tell his story and, be, you know, share his testimony with someone. Um, however, in the book of Acts, this is the last time we hear from Paul really give it in such detail. This is sort of like Paul's last stand for us in, in the book of Acts, of him sharing this wonderful truth of what God did for him and then how others can find that same, same joy. So we have followed this man um, since he shows up in this narrative in chapter 8 of Acts all the way through now. So we've been into it 18 chapters now. And in chapter 26, where we will finish this morning, um, Paul makes a statement that I want to kind of use as a platform for our morning, and that is this. He says, I wish everyone who hears me might become as I am. And today, in our, in our look at his, his story again and his declared gospel, we get to see why. So um, we're going to look at it, break it down, read a bunch of texts, and, and ask some questions. And what we'll see in this story is, again, Paul's testimony, his calling, his message, and ultimately his example, which is where that phrase comes from. I wish everyone could be like me, except for these chains. So let's pick up the story in verse 13. We'll read to verse 22. This, this is going to kind of tell us the players in the story, what's going on, the particular narrative that we have to deal with. So here we go, verse 13. Now when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. And as they, were, as they stayed there many days, Festus laid Paul's case before the king, saying, there is a man left prisoner by Felix. And when I was at Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews laid out their case against him, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered them that it was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had an opportunity to make his defense concerning the charge laid against him. So when they came together here, I made no delay, but on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. And when the accuser stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss for how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I'd like to hear that man myself. Tomorrow, he said, you will, you will hear him. There's several things that are interesting to me in, as this narrative starts to unfold um, of what, what's going on and, and who are these people and why they'd be even interested in hearing Paul's like repetitive story. First of all, here's the kind of general depiction of what's happening. Herod Agrippa II shows up, and from what we can tell from the text, for a random reason. Like he's just doing whatever, I guess, kings do, and he stopped by to visit uh, Festus. He's there for several days, and somehow in the midst of their conversation, this story about this man named Paul shows up. Festus says it to him. I mean, imagine it becomes a, a part of the reason it's because of Festus' frustration with not really knowing for certain what to do with Paul, Okay. And basically, he says to Agrippa, Felix, the last guy, left me with this mess, and I really don't know what to do with it. 
I mean, I, I put him on trial, I heard the accusers, and I concluded there wasn't anything there. I mean, they got some issues about his religion, but I, what, he doesn't deserve condemnation or death, and so I'm not certain what, what to, to do with this. And Agrippa just says, well, let me, let me hear it. And, and it's interesting why, uh, for our sake, to know that Agrippa's interest, um, he was the latest uh, Herod in the line of Herods, of the dynasty of Herods, okay? He was considered an expert of Jewish religion, all right? He was uh, responsible for the care of the temple. Uh, he appointed the high priest. He was the one who took care of the temple treasury. So as a... a uh, Jewish religious expert, Festus would have a great interest in what he thought about his claims, right? And it would also explain why Agrippa showed an interest because of what he'd heard about this, this man named Paul. His family has an interesting history which will kind of depict him as a type and I, and I want to kind of make sure that's clear. His great-grandfather was the, was the Herod who feared the birth of Jesus and basically put to death babies in, around Bethlehem during his, his time. His granduncle Agrippa had murdered John the Baptist and his father executed James, so their family line is, is known for an opposition to what God was doing, right? That's kind of who they are. Bernice is mentioned here. She happens to be his full-blood sister, and there's a little scandal, according to most writers, that would suggest is going on with Bernice. She's, she's also living incestually with, with Agrippa. And it was so scandalous and so weird, even Romans thought she was strange, okay? So when you're, when you're scaring the Roman populace based on your behavior, you know you've crossed a, a few lines. And that's court, sort of what's going on here. And that's the scene. It's interesting also to note that this isn't a formal trial that Paul is going through now with Agrippa. Uh, there is no accusers. There's no he said, she said going on in this story. Agrippa just wants to hear from Paul himself, okay? And, and I think his interest shows up in verse 19 um, fairly clearly. When, when, when Festus says that it was a debate about a certain Jesus who, whom Paul asserts to be alive, although he was dead. Now, I, I don't know, but that would get my attention. You know, if you're some kind of leader and someone says, there's this guy and everyone's up in arms about him. He was dead, now he's alive. That's the story. So it explains why Agrippa would go, oh, let me meet this guy. Let me hear this myself, okay? Festus' interest was very personal and very, very specific. Look at verse 25 to 27. As the governor, who's now been compelled to send this case up to Caesar, he also has to accompany with this case a letter depicting what's going on, all right? And here's what he says. But I have nothing definite to write to my Lord about him. Therefore, I brought him before you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we've examined him, I might have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to initiate, to indicate the charges against him. I, I, I don't want to look stupid sending this case up to Caesar and having nothing to kind of declare the issues enough for him. They're just going to question my leadership. So Festus has an interest j just to hear this case again so that he might do better with the case. And Ag Agrippa is interested because I think basically he hears this story about dead men come to life. And, and all of Israel's up in arms about it. So I think there's those interests. Verse 23 describes the environment that now Paul is walking into. One simple phrase I want to point out. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and they entered the audience hall with military tribunes and prominent men of the city. So I just want you to picture this. That word great pomp in, in, the, in the original language is one word for fantasy. 
everyone's wearing their royal robes. This, this is like a movie. Trumpets are blaring, I'm just assuming. Things are going on to present the, the magnitude and the grandness of these people to hear the case. It was all designed to intimidate and impress the person now being questioned. And so Paul comes into this fantasy world of these leaders, and he's not intimidated at all. It didn't work. Um, Look at the testimony of Paul, at chapter 26, the first 15 verses. He tells his story. Now, I don't want you to get tired of this story. We've heard it and heard it and heard it. We lived it when we went through Acts. And so even though you're very familiar, listen to how Paul lays down his testimony again. So Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it's, It is before you, King Agrippa, that I'm going to be able to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope, I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving the authority of the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who, who are you, Lord? And, and the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom, you are, whom you're persecuting. Let me just kind of paraphrase this testimony of, of Paul. Paul says, in, in its simplest form, in the beginning of his declaration, here's why I'm on trial. I'm on trial for believing God. I'm on trial for believing everything every Israelite here believes. That God had a Messiah. God has a Messiah and he's coming. I, I, I believe that. Don't we all believe in his coming? And, and he recognizes the problem because that's the second half of his story. When he laments the fact that he's there for the absurdity, at least they believe, of, of God rising someone from the dead, he says, now I get it, I get it, I understand. It was a problem for me too. <laughs> Jesus is the problem, I get it. I, I'm not foolish. He's not the king we were looking for. You know, we were looking for this powerful king and this political king. And he's, he's a nobody from nowhere. And he took a small position in life. He's got no home, no place to lay his head. He suffered and he doesn't look at all like what we were looking for. And I, so I understand. I'm very sympathetic to why you can't see him. So, so I get it. And I, I so understand, let me just tell you by my life, I tried to stop it. I thought it was stupid too. I, 
I pursued and hunted down people who talked about this Jesus being alive and being the Messiah. And I was happy when they died and I cast my vote when they were killed and I went after them and I kept going after them. And by the way, I was on my way after more of them in Damascus when this light from heaven came. And I couldn't see, but I heard. And what I heard was this Jesus who asked me why I'm persecuting him. Why are you kicking against the goads? We, we talked about that phrase many, many weeks ago. A goad is a sharpened stick used to kind of control beasts of burden, you know, when they want to kick their way out of a, a set of yokes or whatever. I mean, just imagine the kind of sharpened prods of God for Paul. Every time one of these saints died with a smile on their face, he probably went, whoa, there's something to this. That's called conviction, you know, just onslaught of God getting after him. And so Jesus says, man, you've seen all these things. And you keep kicking. But I, I saw it, okay? And I saw this. And so here's, here's what I've concluded. That he's the Messiah. It's Jesus. He's the promised one. That's how this all works out for me. And by the way, Jesus gave me a job to do. Look at verses 16 and 17. Jesus says to Paul, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as servant and witness to the things to which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from, from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. In other words, Paul tells Agrippa that Jesus himself, this risen Lord, called him to this ministry, this love for people, this witness of the story of the good news, how God came from heaven to earth to rescue his people. And to be that person, that mouthpiece and a promise from God to protect him as he did it. And here's the message, O king. Here's the message he gave me. And by the way, verse 18, a very, very concise, very detailed gospel depiction. Look at verse 18. This is the message now that Paul travels with. I'm sending you to open their eyes so they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by, by faith in me. There's a message that Paul received. It's the same message Jesus had, the same message the disciples had. It's the same message, by the way, even though hard to spot, from cover to cover, the redemptive story of God redeeming sinners. It's always been true. It's just more detailed now that God is turning his people from darkness to him. He's dealing with man's greatest needs and deepest questions in the person of Christ. You know, the questions everybody deals with, doesn't matter what generation you grew up in. And, and clearly in our culture, man, we talk like we have answers, but all I ever hear is questions. What explains all of this? I can't watch a football game now without people being mad at each other. What, what explains all of this? What, what explains my fear? What, what explains my suffering and my pain? Why is everything so broken? What am I supposed to do with all the hurt? What am I supposed to do when people hurt me and I hurt them? What am I supposed to do with that? What am I supposed to do about this massive weight I carry around? What am I supposed to do with my sin? No, that's not a question most people articulate, but it's certainly one that rests on their soul. When it's all said and done, the mess we live in is the mess we created, and we don't have an answer. What am I supposed to do? 
And Jesus comes to give that answer. Here's the answer, and here's Paul's message. And he says in verse 18, it's turning from darkness to light. It's turning from the power of Satan to the power of God. Let me just say this. I I don't know any really personally. I know there might be some, but I, I don't know anyone who wakes up in the morning and says, today I'm living for the power of Satan. I mean, you might have those friends. I don't. I don't know anybody like that, okay? It sounds crazy to even mention it. Who would even do that? Who would even say that? But here's the problem. When we think that the power of Satan, we typically think in, in extremes. Like we conclude, okay, it's so wild and so wacky. It's like a television movie. That, that's not my problem. I would, I would never do that. Um, trusting in the power of Satan isn't to be a part of some seance or witch's coven. As much as that seems extreme, I wouldn't suggest that as a positive. That's a negative. But what I'm trying to say to you, Satan is way more deceptive and way more subtle than something like that. So if you picture these extreme things and say, I'm good, I'm good, I got no problem, then you're missing the whole point of Satan's attack against you. He is a deceiver, and he doesn't care how far you miss him by as long as you miss him. And that's the reality of Satan's attacks. He, all he wants to do is deter you from trusting in God alone. Let me give you the scripture's statements about Satan. He's a liar and the father of lies, John chapter 8. He blinds the minds of unbelievers, 2 Corinthians 4. He masquerades as light, 2 Corinthians 11. He does signs and wonders, 2 Thessalonians. He's a tempter to sin, 2 Corinthians, and he plucks the word out of people's heart, Mark chapter 4. That's what he does, and no one sees it coming because he's subtle. He's smooth, and he's good at it. So let me give you a definition, different than the extreme version you might have heard of what it means to kind of follow that darkness. Trusting in anything other than Jesus alone is trusting in the power of Satan. Just miss it. That's what it is. It is so subtle. You don't have to blatantly go against God. All you have to do is live your life without him. It doesn't have to be what you perceive to be an ongoing war. It's just indifference. Scriptures tell us that we were made by God and for God. Darkness is living without God. That's what darkness is. Or you can fashion, which is classic, it's totally popular, fashion a God in your own image. You know? A God like me is way more comfortable than a God like this. Way more comfortable. A God who grades my life based on a curve. A God who winks at my sin. A God who who changes to keep up with the times for crying out loud, things are different, God. You gotta, you gotta kind of get with the times. That kind of God I'm okay with because he's way more like me. Paul's message from Christ to the people was to tell them the truth. Not what they wanted to hear, but what they needed to hear. This is God. This is the standard of God. It's seen clearly in the person of, of Jesus. Trusting in anything else but Jesus alone is living in the darkness. Does that make sense? Paul's message also, verse 18, powerful verse, is also a message of forgiveness of sins. When he says, verse 18, just to remind you, that that they might receive forgiveness of sins. We have this version of how we deal with one another's sins, and it's no judgment. It sounds judgmental, what I'm about to say. It's twisted. Somebody says something wrong, somebody does something wrong to you, we're so quick to get out of the pressure of that and go, hey, never mind. And sometimes we think that's how God deals with our sin. Forgiveness is God going, never mind, it's okay. 
That's not forgiveness of sins. The forgiveness of God comes through God's justice being satisfied and nothing else. Did you hear what I just said? God's justice, his righteous standard has to be appeased or there is no forgiveness of sins. Sin doesn't just go away. It has to be paid for. It has to be paid for. It is this. It's what Paul wrote to the church in Colossae. Listen to this. And you who are dead in your trespasses and the circumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Here's how he did it. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it where? To the cross. Every sin, every sin of God's people has to be covered by the blood of Christ's cross or there is no it's okay with sin. Forgiveness comes one way, God's justice being satisfied. And the conclusion of those who experience the the absolute justice of God by the work of Christ, they hear these words, hey brother, as far as the east is from the west, so far I've removed your transgressions from you. I remember them no more. And here's why, all of your failures, all of your sins have already been punished completely on Christ. I'm satisfied. Does that make sense? The message that Paul received from Jesus is also a message of sanctification. Let me explain that word, but this is what he says. You may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are, present tense, sanctified. Again, sanctified means to be holy. Not work your way to be holy. Truly being holy, righteous, sinless. We've read this passage so many times, we probably have it memorized, but let me just read it to you again. The power of this is amazing. Paul's words again about this truth. But now the righteousness of God, which is what we're talking about here, sanctification, has been manifest apart from the law, apart from work, apart from religion, apart from trying to fix your problems yourself, apart from all of that stuff. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all who sin and fall short of the glory of God are justified as a gift of his grace, freely. Justified, like it never happened. When God truly sees you and sees me, and what he sees me is I'm wrapped with, wrapped with the righteous robes of Christ. He sees no sin because the sin was put on Christ my Savior. Sanctified, sanctified. We talk about this, it might be a little churchy, but let me give it to you. This wonderful transaction of my sin placed on Christ, his righteousness placed on me, that double imputation thing, that's the only way we're sanctified. Paul's message, the one he received in Christ, was also a message of faith alone in Christ alone. As he finishes, verse 18, this is what he says, that you might receive this forgiveness of sins in a place among those who are sanctified, what's it say? By faith in me. Those are Jesus' words. By, my, by faith in me, in the very beginning of our study of Acts, Peter preaching probably the second greatest sermon we, we've heard, apart from Christ, made it really clear. Salvation is found in no one else because there is no name under heaven by which men must be saved other than Jesus. No other name. There's no other answer. There's no other hope. There's no other solution to sin. That's it. Jesus said himself and John, listen, I am the exclusive way and the truth and the life and nobody, nobody gets to God. Nobody has his sins solved or, or forgiven unless it comes through me. Faith in me alone. 
you know, I was thinking about ways to illustrate this, illustrate this, but, you know, in our culture, man, there's always these places and times where I'm watching the news and some kind of poisonous gas is happening or some kind of bad scene and people show up in these white Tyvek suits, these hazmat suits and solving their problems. We kind of think that way without sorting it through in our minds. Like we have spiritual hazmat suits that allow us to clean up our own mess. That's not possible. There isn't anything you can do. There's nothing you can read, nothing you can know, no place you can go. There's no amount of genuflecting. There's no amount of prayers, no amount of church attendance, no amount of knowledge that will solve this problem. You cannot fix your problem yourself. Sin is so great, so grand, there's only one solution, faith in Christ alone. Somebody say amen to that. It's Christ alone or it's nothing. And this, this wonderful verse, this verse 18 that Paul said, that's the story he gave me. That's the story I'm telling. It's Christ alone or nothing. It's trusting in him. Jesus alone takes on God's furious wrath, the one I deserve. And he's more than enough to satisfy. Scripture's clear. Paul is clear again in Romans where he says that God shows his own love towards us in this, while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. So even sequence matters in this story. Because <laughs> sometimes we think, you know, I heard it and I sorted it out and I made an intellectual ascent of this and I made some steps and I went to church and I believed and I was a part of the story. No, you weren't. While you were yet sinners at war with God, at enmity, fighting, shaking your fist at God, Christ died for you. Where were you? Dead in your sin, fighting God. If anything depicts my condition and the reason why Christ has to be exclusive, that does, right? That's the, that's the truth. Now, that's the message that Paul received from King Jesus. And that's the message he's been telling now for years, some 27 years. Paul has been preaching this exclusive truth that sets people free. And it all revolves around a living Messiah. And then he uses his own life as an example. And by the way, here's what, here's what God is doing. Read with me verses 19 through 24. This is his story. Again, he's met Jesus. Jesus gives him the message, gives him the calling. And then he says, verse 19, therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I've had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Verse 24, and as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. I, I find Festus' response interesting at the least, but um, a testimony of the condition of men's heart at, at the worst. Remember, Festus, this isn't the first time he's heard Paul's story. This is not the very first time that Festus sat down and heard what Paul had to say about what happened to him. He's already been through this. What, what makes Festus react so strongly to say to Paul, man, you're nuts. That's what your problem is. You're crazy. L let me suggest to you, the only possible reason Festus gets so ramped up here is because it's the first time Festus ever listened. 
I think what Festus heard the first time is accuser, accusee. I heard the story. I got to sort out the case. I got to figure out if I send it to Caesar. I got to think. I got to think. And this time he's sort of a passive person in this story because Agrippa is hearing this. And he's kind of off to the side, kind of holding his arms across his chest going, I've heard this. What does Agrippa have to say? And for the very first time he heard the gospel and that was his problem. Paul said, the gospel is foolish to those who are perishing. You're nuts. But it's the power of God to those who are being saved. You want an explanation for the accusation on the world that you're crazy whenever you bring up Jesus? There's no way without God's help anyone will ever see Jesus. Can't do it. Festus looks at it and goes, it's nuts. And by the way, every, every bit of what you say, Paul, drives me crazy. You talk about Jesus, you talk about a resurrection, and then you talk about joy and suffering like that's a good thing. Everything goes countercultural to my Roman mind. That's nuts. I got no room for it. Listen to Kent Hughes talk about his struggle, Festus' struggle, that is. Festus being first and last a politician, worshiped power and was a practical materialist. A sensible Roman, he could not believe in the resurrection of a dead man. And even if he did privately accept such a bizarre view, he would not allow it to interfere with practical living or to challenge accepted views and values. Being politically and spiritually correct was everything to Festus. Paul's testimony of his encounter with and the commission by Christ on the road to Damascus stretched Festus' rationality to the limit. Further, Paul's dogged obedience to Christ's commission despite persecution offended Festus' instinctive hedonism or, or desire for joy at all costs, right? It made no sense to him for Paul to choose a path that not only brought the apostle less pleasure, but more suffering. You're nuts, Paul. You take Jesus and it gets harder? Who would do that? It makes no sense. Listen to how Paul responds, verses 25. Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I'm speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe in the prophets? I know you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Uh, this is the greatest escape from a great question I've found in Scripture. Agrippa, at this point, is stuck. Paul asks him a question. You're the king of Israel. You tell us, do you believe in the prophets or not? If you say yes, you, you have to deal with the fulfillment of these prophecies you say you believe in, in the person of Jesus. What are you going to do, Agrippa? And if you say no, every good law-abiding Jew in the country is going to be mad at you because they believe the prophets speak for God. What are you going to say, Agrippa? What are you going to do with this? And so what does he do? What every good politician would do. Don't answer the question. He doesn't answer. He says, ah, would you get to me that quickly? Would I just be turned that fast? Paul's response to his no response is, is sounds a little arrogant, to be honest with you, at first read. But I'm going to tell you why and what he's referring to. Paul says in verse 29, Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that you... Not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Paul, in essence, says to Agrippa, you need to be like me. <laughs> Sounds arrogant, right? Not, not something you want to say in the debate, probably, but what Paul is referring to is what he said in verse 20. One sentence, one half sentence, really, in verse 20. 
And here's what he said. The message that he got from the heavenly vision, who is Jesus, he said, was this, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Agrippa, Festus, listen to me. Listen to me. I thought this was all crazy too. I was into it, man. I was after these people. I tried to shut it down. I gave hearty approval to people's execution. I thought that all my efforts were pleasing God. I was working on making a good pile outweigh my bad pile so God could look at me and approve of me based on my efforts. I was doing it. I was doing it constantly. That was what I was about. But I ran into Jesus. (laughs) And he's a savior. And here's what I did. I had to repent. I was wrong. I was wrong. Wrong about everything. Wrong about him for certain. Completely wrong. Which is sort of where we want to finish this morning. With one word. The word repent. In verse 20. Strange, unpopular, difficult, nobody wants to hear word. Repent. Repentance is a military term. It's about faith. You've heard me say this before. It's leaving You, your life, your answers, your sin, your pursuits, turning and pursuing Christ. Repentance. And here's what I know about this awkward word. Too many people want the joy of this salvation without the repentance it flows from. You can have Jesus and you can have forgiveness of sins and you can have life eternal and he can be your God. But it only comes one way. You got to repent. You got to leave it. It's not a bad word at all, church. Let me just suggest to you, as much as it scares us to come clean on who we are, what you need to be afraid of is if you don't. Because in that condition, God will face you down for who you are without any substitute. And the Bible says we all fall short. Let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you for this gospel. It never gets old. We never get tired of hearing it. In this wonderful way, you have weaved our stories and our ears around your truth. Here we are now, many months after starting this story of the early church, and we're back to the the main thing, the good news, the gospel, that sinners need a savior, and by grace, through faith, In Christ alone, we can be forgiven. Lord, I just pray that we hear this in this room and not call it foolish. We pray in Christ's name, amen.